This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Nothing happens in a small town. Okay. You may have heard a giggle from me because we were playing around with our sound equipment again. Yeah. Imagine that. (laughs) It's a continuous issue. Yeah. Every few little bit, it just has issues. Yeah. And like this this, uh, week, uh, Missy has finally dumped one of her, um, the, the, what would you microphone call it? arm the arm yeah, yeah because it kept sliding and there was one episode that was talking talking then all of a sudden yeah um <laughs> you okay over there yeah and <sighs> last week it was starting to slip again and it wasn't quite as bad as the time the one before falling <laughs> but it still wasn't quite working it's like all right fine i will use a regular arm but now i've got to gotta angle things because uh, yeah. it just isn't quite picking me up as well it's weird it's like we've got the same holder doohickey for you know technical terms here and mine's all tightened down but for the life of me i can't get yours tightened down the same way yeah i have no idea why it's i'm thinking pull out the heavy equipment get a wrench (laughs) (laughs) or throw it out a window i don't know i don't know (laughs) we'll figure it out eventually so I was going to tell you that uh, yesterday, Rick and I went on a date night, which we haven't done in forever because of COVID. COVID. Right. And uh, so we took the motorcycle out and we went out to dinner and uh, it was like, you you remember before COVID, you know, Saturday night going out to a restaurant was like, I mean, you'd be waiting an hour to get There's a reason I don't go to restaurants very often. Yeah. That would be exhibit A. Well, it was <laughs> completely different. We walked in, we were seated right away, and I we had called ahead to get a table, but we didn't need to because hmm. it was quiet and Weird. um yeah, and it was I thought like, I heard because yesterday was such gorgeous weather. Oh, it was beautiful. Maybe the outdoor dining was insane, which Maybe. is where I would. Well, and they didn't. I mean, we went to Outback Steakhouse, and they didn't have any. Outdoor oh gosh, dining. that place would be something ridiculous, like oh, sixty yeah. minute wait in the stupid little thingy that blows up yes. at you. Okay, so I haven't been to one of those in ages. Walk in, get a table, get our. I mean, it was just kind of crazy. It's like it wow. Odd. Huh. But yeah, I guess, you know, maybe because people are staying home more. Well, our our rates here have gone up again, so I That's don't know. That's true. It's been flip-flopping what state what um counties are at high versus medium versus low yeah. lately. Yeah. Yeah, cause, yeah. But I mean, in any case it was kind of nice. It was nice to cool. actually go out and 
have a date night and well now I feel real crappy for not meeting up with Jana <laughs> at Lures <laughs> yesterday but I just I we talked about maybe going out for lunch and they've got an extended amount of outdoor dining areas but I was just trashed yesterday yeah not alcohol trashed I was brain dead from <laughs> just work has been clearly overdoing it lately and that happens. <laughs> yes, I needed a day to just basically be nothing. <laughs> Playing games on my phone if I was doing anything at all besides staring at a TV or sleeping. Yeah. Yep. So this week's case, we are back I'm, in Illinois. Yep. Imagine that. I, I don't mean, know. We have quite a we have our, our a lot of our followers are in Illinois or yeah. from Illinois, with a handful here in Maryland. Though I know we're right. expanding. Yes. So um, this was suggested by Kathy. So thank you for the suggestion. And this case uh, happens in Alexis. Alexis, Alexis, Illinois. Illinois. It's not far from Kiwani, and actually, the um, Mr. Hilliard was born in Kiwani, and I just. I know I know of these people, and I don't know exactly why. Yeah. It's like it's stuck in my head that, of course, I know these people, but I can't picture them well, other than what I've seen in the articles. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's small town area. It's not yeah. far from Kiwani, farming community. So highly, and as we get into it, you know, it, there's several ways you could have Oh, yeah. And I vaguely remember when this happened because I had just graduated from high school. Yeah. So Charles Lonnie Hilliard was born April 8th, 1949 in Kiwani. At this time, he is 44 years old. Lonnie was a farmer. He married Candace Wyatt in 1973. He had a son, Robert Shane Hilliard, who went by Shane. Uh, Lonnie and Candace uh, split when Shane was about six years old. Uh, Shane split time between both the parents, and eventually he kind of just lived with his dad. Um, Not really sure why that was, but that was kind of the case. Uh, Lonnie was a prominent member of the community. He was involved in the local church. Um, But around five to six years old, uh, Shane started to be emotionally abused. Or at least that's the allegations. Yeah. Um, so and around then at 10... 10, it became physical. And Shane was punched. This is kind of the earliest time he remembers that anything happened. He was punched for, or at least that he says, um, he was punched for running over some rows of corn with the tractor as he was spraying weeds. Um, neighbors supposedly witnessed the violence, but did nothing. Lonnie would use a crowbar or a belt to punish Shane. Ouch. Yeah. And his mother noticed the bruises, but she didn't pursue it. She didn't ask questions. But according to her... Um, she also suffered from abuse from Lonnie. So right. it was one of those, I think, maybe, you know, in cycles of abuse. Oh, yeah. I it's... mean, I'm, I've seen plenty of abuse, and there was plenty of abuse yeah. in my home when I was a real little. Thankfully, I don't remember much of it. So July 14th, 1993, 
uh, Shane and Lonnie had been working and they had been arguing. Um, one thing was that Shane had not put enough gas into the truck. And then also about Shane's, Shane's girlfriend. girlfriend. Uh, Lonnie didn't like her. He didn't think Shane should be dating somebody. I think she was a little bit older than he was. Yeah. And it was just, uh, they were arguing again. This was not an uncommon thing between the two of them. Right. And per his side of the story, mm-hmm. he says that Lonnie had knocked him out with a crowbar. Mm-hmm. And after he came to, Lonnie chased him with a pitchfork. Right. Both sound absolutely horrible. Yep. Uh, so Shane ran, ran to the truck and he grabbed a shotgun that he had kept in there for hunting. Um, he pointed the gun at Lonnie and kind of warned him to, you know, back away, not. Yeah, stop. Know, stop. This isn't working. Um, and then apparently he continued coming at him with the pitchfork and then Shane shot him. Uh, Shane said that Lonnie smiled and continued to come at him. Shane shot him two more times. So Shane did kill Lonnie. Um, Shane called his girlfriend, who he picked up, and she helped him dispose of Lonnie. Shane made excuses for Lonnie's absence. When people started searching for him, he didn't participate. August 8th. Lonnie's remains were found in Viola. Here we go with Viola again. Heard of that. <laughs> Nothing happens in a small, small town. town. Um, no. Nope. <laughs> Shane charged with three counts of first degree murder and felony concealment of a homicidal death. Yeah. I mean, this is, wow, um, pretty deep. I mean, there at no point do they, does he ever say he didn't kill his dad. No, he it's fully all, admits to right, it. But it's all the circumstances. Yes. Um, so now that we've started this, let's talk about Alexis, Illinois. Okay. This time I actually did go into the town again. Um, it is one of my little, um, loves, if you will, looking into the towns. It actually straddles two counties, Mercer and Warner County, and it is denoted as a village. We're not calling it a city (laughs) of a couple hundred people. Um, the Mercer County portion is considered part of the Quad Cities metro areas in Davenport, Moline, Rock Island. The Warren County portion is in the Galesburg quote unquote metro area. And I'm going to let you know that met- uh, Metro, mm, Galesburg's like 32,000 people. Yeah, not, not Metro. <laughs> and is the county seat of Knox County. So these are some of the smaller counties in Illinois. Because Henry County, where we're from, where Kiwani is, is I think that's the largest county, isn't it? That I think sounds, it is land-wise. Yeah, that sounds right. Where Cook, ha- which is Chicago, has the most population. Right. Anyhow, it was originally called Alexandria or Alexandria Station, And it was actually laid out in 1870 when there was, shocker of shockers, a railroad (laughs) extended to that point. Uh, Imagine that. Mm. Railroads are basically how all the towns in Illinois grew up. Um, Okay, so maybe not all of them, but... But uh, pretty close. Yeah. I mean, the railroad has a lot to do with a lot of the start you know beginnings of towns in illinois mm-hmm. um after learning that there's another illinois town named alexander the founders wanted a new name and around this time the grand duke alexis was visiting the country and that's how they renamed the town who 
who in the heck is this guy? It's the Grand Duke Alexei Alexandrovich of Russia. Hmm. He was born in uh, January of 1850 in St. Petersburg and died in November of 1908 in Paris. He was the fifth child and fourth son of Emperor or Tsar Alexander II of Russia and his first wife, Maria Alexandrovich. Alexandrovna. I can do Russian, not at all. <laughs> um, he was a naval officer on the 23rd of November in um, the year. Let's see. Oh, I actually missed putting in the year because I thought we mentioned it, but uh, my, my bad. So he was received by President Ulysses S. Grant, so that can give you a time frame there, in D.C. after spending, like, the Thanksgiving time in New York. The president's wife, Julia Grant, his daughter, Nellie Grant, also attended, as well as most members of the cabinet. But what's interesting about this is the visit to Washington was overshadowed by President Grant discontent caused by the Russian government's refusal to recall one of their ministers, Konstantin Katakazi. And I would take you down that entire road, but then we would run out of time. Um, <laughs> and I loved that this was um, this particular little snippet I got out of um, Wikipedia, and then I went down others. And I love that they called him the minister plenipotentiary. I'm like, what? Hmm. Oh, that's a fancy word for that. He was basically... A minister that could speak on behalf of Russia. Oh. You know, we have those. That's yeah. you know, it's pretty typical. But I just love the use of a ten dollar wood word when a two dollar word would be fine. So um his entire visit in DC only lasted one day. He had wanted to come back later um during uh when Congress was in session and meet with some congress congressional people, but it just fell through. Um, another notable thing was that no formal entertainment was given while he was in D.C., though for all other visits of rem members of royal families to the White House, formal dinners are typically organized. Um, but he did seem to have plenty of fun on his trip, especially in New York. He visited the Brooklyn Navy Yard, Fort Wadsworth, and fortifications on Governor's Island. He reviewed the fire department in Tompkins Square, and a highlight of the trip was steam steaming up on the Hudson to visit the uh, West Point Academy. Hmm. That's kind of cool. There were balls arranged in his honor, and the most important being the Grand Ball at the Navy Yard and at the a Academy of Music. Um, he attended opera performances of Faust and Mignon at the Academy of Music, and he went on a shopping spree. Imagine that. I just yeah. think of the beginning of Godzilla. I want to go shopping. <laughs> like, yeah, so does everybody else. Um, A.T. Stewart, which I've not, I can't say I know anything about. I think I started to go down that line and decided that was too much. And Tiffany, imagine that. And he bought a bunch of jewelry and bronze statues. So back to Alexis, because we don't need to talk about this uh, Russian uh, member of a royal family. As of 2000, um, there are 863 res residents of Alexis. 499 of them live in Warren County and 364 in Mercer County. Uh, there are 31 households and 246 families. 28% um, had children on, under the age of 18. Um, nearly 60 of them were, 60% of them were married couples. 6.6 had a female householder and no husband. And Ooh, shocker. Imagine that. Hmm. <laughs> and 32% were non-families. So, yeah, people who live in together because they were roommates, what have you. 
and uh, I find see. that the the female only head of household seems kind of low, interesting but fact. yeah. Well, it's just kind of one of those okay. And and the way it's phrased with no husband. It's been present. Um, present. Yeah. No present, present husband. So, okay. Um, <laughs> Most houses were f- like two to three people, which is weird. Yeah. It's like, because, uh, well, I guess that's made up by the 30% of households were just one individual living alone. Hmm. That would kind of pull that, skew it around. Right. And I guess we don't need to go into all that, blah. But the median income I find interesting because this is, you know, small town America. And I like try to tell people around here that I could live like a god back home on what I make. But to live here, of course, it all just goes to all the payments to live here. Right. But the median income for a household in the village was 36705 Median income for a family was 46000 Males had a median median income of thirty two thousand and nineteen thousand for females. Hmm, wonder why? Because they're on state aid, mm-hmm. and per capita income is around seventeen thousand. So four percent to of the families and six percent of the population live below the poverty line. And if we actually really thought about poverty in reality, it's probably a little bit more than that. Right. Um. But yeah, so it's just one of those things. It's small town America. It's there's a reason people live in small towns like this. You can actually live on minimum wage oh, yeah. in such locations. Um, you can't do that here, that's for sure. No. Um, yeah. So, oh, and I was gonna say one real quick oh, thing. Sure. The uh, largest employer was the Alexis Fire Equipment uh, Company, manufacturer of fire engines and firefighting related equipment. Hmm. That's it. Blah, blah. I know, me and all my little stats. So the trial began April 25th, 1994. Then it was delayed as they moved it from Mercer County to Peoria County. Basically, everybody in Mercer County knew about it, so... Imagine that. Yeah. Tiny, tiny little com- county that's made up of s- primarily small towns. Right. Change of venue. I think that's probably a good idea. Uh, 74 people testified, so that's it a- was quite a trial. No wonder I actually kind of remember this. <laughs> yeah, it was it was in the paper almost every day. I mean, it was yeah. like every day or every other day there was something new in the paper. And I actually went through and read all the paper articles on oh, this. Oh, wow. So it was really interesting. I only read a handful. I didn't read that many. But I, I like I said, I vaguely remember this. This was right after graduation. So I think I was living in Pekin with my sister. Mm. So where the trial was happening... And, of course, just keeping tabs on what's going on back home. Mm -hmm. So, Kelly Montroy was Shane's girlfriend at the time of the murder. They met at a party and started dating the next day. She said he never told her that his father was abusing him. She also said that he talked about poisoning his father. He, she had asked, he had asked asked her. her... if she had any poison. <laughs> well, you know, like, she's a woman, of course. Yeah. That's how women murder, right? Um, <laughs> he said that his mother would be blamed and he would be rid of them both. Now, this is all according to her. Right. Um, July 14th, Shane called Kelly crying. He asked if he could pick her up. When he picked her up, he said, he's gone. It's over. 
it isn't going to happen anymore. It's done with. So I find this kind of interesting that in that. kind of contradicts what she just said that yes. there was no problem. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, there's there's things Why would with you her help? Yeah. and her testimony where even the judge was like, she's lying. It's so, just, yeah, we can't believe a thing that comes out of her mouth. Well, you know, she's in love. And if she's also she's teens love, and 20s. Yeah, a little. Well, and also she's, you know, saving her own bacon by testifying. Right. Mm-hmm. Correct. And uh, y'all can't hear my eye roll. (laughs) (laughs) She did help Shane hide the body and she came out later and said she lied about what happened. Shocker. Uh And uh, she commented at one point, I love him. If I can't have him, I'd rather see him in prison. Okay, this makes no sense. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, her testimony is all over the place, maybe because she thinks she's being smart to keep herself from getting any more trouble, even though well, she had, and she had immunity. Big time jealousy streak. I mean, she really, <sighs> apparently at one point, Shane was talking to another girl and she went ballistic. So I don't know if you can trust half of what she said, but it's yeah. hard to say, you know, Um she says he wasn't being abused and that he, um, it wasn't self-defense. He planned it. So that right. right there sounds like she wanted him in jail. Right. And she said that Shane traced his father's footsteps at the family farm the night of the shooting, crawled on the ground over crops, showing her how he had hidden in some weeds before the incident. Uh, she said Lonnie Hilliard was leaning on a pitchfork watching a fire he started in an old barn when his son shot him in the arm. Lonnie then allegedly ran toward the spot where the teen was hiding but suddenly switched directions. Shane shot him again then waited for him to die. Kelly could not finish her testimony as she collapsed after seven hours and was rushed to the hospital. She was dismissed shortly after so drama much defense had her read a letter she had sent to shane's mother where she talked about noticing bruises on shane going back to that whole thing again she's contradicting herself um there was also zero evidence of crops being damaged from shane supposedly crawling through you know to stalk lonnie but, so. I mean, if it's, what would, because they, they didn't say what type of crops, but if it's corn, you can walk through corn without damaging anything. I, yeah, I don't think it was. It'd have to be like soybeans yeah, or hay. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It had to be soybeans. Because, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just if here thinking. If you're having to crawl, I mean, for one thing, you Crawling? wouldn't have to crawl through corn. No. Not well, unless it was, no. It's July. It's July, Yeah. yeah. Well, the old saying is knee high by the 4th of July, but typically anymore, the corn is at right. least like and this up is to your the end waist of, to shoulder in July. End of July. So, I mean, I guess you could damage baby corn. Sorry. Yeah. I'm just like sitting here going. It just, yeah. Anyhow. It's not ringing true. I feel like I need to go visit Illinois in July. Not really because it's hot as heck. Well, yeah. Um, not that it wasn't hot as heck here too. So she pled guilty to obstruction of justice for helping hide Lonnie's body and abandoning his truck at a Quad City grocery store. She made a 
deal for probation. Which is pretty sweet because, you know, she yeah. handled a dead body and helped obfuscate it. Yeah. Next up, Lonnie's brother testified. He thought Shane and Lonnie got along fine. That if anything, Lonnie didn't discipline the boy enough. Mm, he was the baby, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah. Um, but Lonnie was a bit of a perfectionist when it came to farming. Uh, his brother saw two bedrooms furnished with beds. Um, Brandy Shaw, an ex-girlfriend, testified that in eighth grade, Shan, Shane had fantasized about killing his father. He talked about poisoning his father, and in two letters to her, Shane talked about punching his father, calling him names. Um, Robert Baker, a classmate, said he thought Shane was joking when he talked about killing his father and leaving him in a green bin. Oof. In eighth or ninth grade, Shane had said he was the perfect. He had the perfect plan to kill his I mean, father. He wouldn't have to kill his father first if he just got him to get into a green bin. That'll kill you. True. I mean, yeah. So then, uh, Michael Kuberski. Kuberski, mm-hmm. a firm hand um, who worked with them, thought Shane was joking when he asked him to get a shotgun from the house and to help him kill his father. They ended up kind of laughing about it. So I I think this was Shane, though, kind of trying to... Testing the waters and seeing what people would think right. and seeing if somebody and, would help him. Right. Looking for help, maybe. And um, there, all, there are things I'll talk about later where... You know, if if what he says is true, you can understand why he yeah. might wish he his might father dead. Break. And actually, <laughs> when I start talking about patricide, mm-hmm. there'll be some stuff about that, too. Um, so Michael also witnessed Shane throwing a hammer and a screwdriver at his father during an argument. I once threw a wooden spoon. Yeah, you know, yep. You do some you dumb crap when you're, you're teenage. Yeah. yeah, teenagers. Yeah, I still I feel terrible about that. <laughs> it's terrible. Because you're just like, oh my God, a wooden spoon could actually hurt somebody. Right. I think a hammer would have hurt a lot more, though. <laughs> I threw a bottle of nail polish, so. I, there you yeah, go. I mean, it happens. Uh, Stan Torrance, who is Shane's brother-in-law, testified that he was on the phone with Shane and heard Lonnie yelling about Shane's dog being in the house. He heard the dog yip. Shane dropped the phone and he heard crashing sounds. Later that day, Lonnie's nose looked like it had been broken and Shane appeared fine. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the people testifying, just a small fraction of the people testifying yeah. against Shane. 74 I did people. Not go into all 74 yeah. accounts. <laughs> we could be here for a while. That's yeah. kind of like when I was going down some of my little rabbit holes. I'm like, and when do I stop this? <laughs> so I did a little research on, research on parasite. You're like, parasite? That's children who kill a parent. And it's sometimes branched out to other close family members as well, especially if it's a mass killing in, we, in which at least a parent also dies. And patricide is specifically to kill one's father, where matricide is mother. There's fratricide for your brothers, blah, 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 blah. According to a 2019 study, and the reason I used parasite instead of patricide, um, parasite is the rarest type of murder. So this is that um, close family member murder of a child to others, not parents killing kids um the fbi said in 2017 that parasite accounts for about two percent of all homicide cases wow 
Um, in 2017, there were a total of 15,129 murder victims in the United States. Among those victims, 169 were mothers and 186 were fathers who were killed by their children. It's also predominantly committed by adult middle-class white males without any history of prior criminal acts. Parasides committed, committed by females is very rare. Um, the offenders are usually younger than the age of 30, but over the age of 18, and there's usually some form or history of mental illness. Adolescent parent killers usually do not have a history of mental illness. Um, motivation for parasite amongst adolescents has been noted as typically long-term abuse by parents, but this is now being refuted. There's actually some new, um, uh, studies that I'm going to refer to in just a little bit. Here's a foot stomper. Difficult relationships between parents and the offender are a common precursor to parasite. Shocker, say it isn't so. Um, a study in 2008 showed that daughters are more likely than sons to murder biological mothers and stepfathers. Uh, and then the boys tend to kill their, their fathers. Um, there are three types of parasite offenders, the severely abused, the mentally ill, and the dangerously antisocial, or at least that's with where they're grouped. There's also other groupings based on, um, age and stuff like that too. But these were the three that I was looking at. Obviously in this case, we're looking at an adolescent and he claims severe abuse, but the prosecution seems to claim severe antisocial behavior. Oh Yeah. So, um, dangerously antisocial individuals usually kill their parents because they see them as an obstacle to a goal or desire. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Some of the most favorite parasite cases in history, Lizzie Borden. Oh, yeah. That's that's a well-known one. (laughs) Allegedly murdered her father and stepmother with an axe in Mm -hmm. 1892. Ronald DeFeo, the inspiration for Amityville Horror. He killed six immediate family members, including his mother, father, two sisters, and two brothers in 1974. The Menendez brothers, they were convicted of killing their parents in 1989 in order to inherit their money, Mm -hmm. and then went on a crazy spending spree like idiots. Oh, sorry. Was that my outside voice? (laughs) Hmm. Uh, Sarah Johnson was 16 when she killed her parents with a high-powered rifle because they had disapproved of her older boyfriend. Hmm. Maybe a little uh, extra, you know, line here. And then uh, Lacey Lannert killed her father in 1990 because of alleged abuse. I do find it also interesting that a number of mass murderers kill their parents first before going on their murder sprees. Yeah. Adam Lanza killed his mother before committing the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in 2012. Kip Kinkle killed his parents before committing the Thurston High School shooting in 1998. And Charles Whitman killed his mother and his wife before climbing the bell tower at UT Austin and randomly killing people in 1966. Upon his autopsy, though, he was found to have a tumor on his amygdala, so hmm. that would affect his ability to rationalize and reason. Right. So back to that, I said there's actually a number of studies now refuting the idea that adolescents kill primarily due to abuse. And this was in uh, retrospect, they started looking at, hey, what are our sample sizes for these decisions we've come up with along the way? So the notion started being challenged in 1999. And Hillbrand et al. suggested that child abuse is simply 
only one variable among myriad variables that lead to adolescent parasite, rather than the primary reason for youthful parasite occurrences. In a study published by Weissman et al. in 2002, they noted there was a remarkable absence of child abuse and emphatically stated that the research did not statistically validate the generalization that prior child abuse had prompted the majority of these crimes. Um, So in 2006, Marillow et al. noted that their study, only 25% of all study participants had been subjected to any kind of family violence, refuting the generalization that child abuse is the primary motivator for parasite by youthful offenders. And they called for more research on this alleged connection because they've got all these other things they were looking at going, is there really a connection between child abuse and the killing of their parents? So Bourget et al. in 2007, they noted a lot of shortcomings in the current literature of the time, suggesting alternative cases of parasite rather than accepting the general notion, (coughs) excuse me, that child abuse was the primary cause. Um, In their commentary on methodological problems plaguing parasite research, Um, Hildebrand and Cipriano noted the challenges posed by studies on parasite, acknowledging that most studies utilized very small sample sizes that should not have been generalized. So if you pay attention to scientific experimentation, what have you, if you have a really small sample size, you can't extrapolate that across a large population, especially when you, you don't take into account such things as race, culture. I mean, there's so much that goes into, if you're doing a study that's just in Illinois or Iowa or Maryland, and you don't include a little more statistical, statistical variance of population, you're just not going to have a good, um, it's not good research. Um, so in 2019, there was a study by, this was the answer, if you will, by Thompson and Thompson. Um, They statistically invalidated the general theory that most adolescent parasites were the result of abuse of the child at the hands of the parents who had been murdered. Their research revealed that only 15% of youthful parasite offenders alleged abuse at the hands of their parents they had killed. Hmm. So they didn't even, 15% were the only ones who alleged it even. Wow. That's pretty, a full 66% were not abused, did not elect allege abuse and were not perpetrators of abuse Mm -hmm. of the remaining population 13 percent of the offenders had alleged abuse that was not substantiated some of the children had lied about abuse and it could not be proven that the abuse had occurred in other cases six percent of youthful parasite offenders had been found to have actually abused their parents Mm. prior to the murders Hmm, what was that about lonnie having a broken nose yeah 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 Child abuse, while a factor present in some youthful parasite occurrences, is not the primary motivator of these murders. As noted above, issues of control are the most typical motive behind the murder. Mm. So if you think of, like, the girl who killed her dad because he didn't like her boyfriend and stuff like that, it really is usually comes from some form of aggravation of their actual, like daily lives sure prior so back to the case uh mercer county sheriff's auxiliary deputy saw the crowbar at the property the crowbar that lonnie had supposedly hit shane with no one examined the crowbar 
Why? So that didn't help <laughs> anything. I don't understand why if you found it. What? Yeah. So Tara Smith, a former friend of Kelly's, testified that Kelly went into a rage when she thought Shane was talking to another woman. Like Here we I go said, again with her. She was jealous. Mm. She had a lot of jealousy. Um, she testified that Kelly would rather see him rot in jail than be with anyone else. She also testified that she and her mother saw signs of abuse and distress from Shane. Yeah. So, so he very well could be one of these children who was abused, but he also sounds like he may have been an abuser too. It's the abused can become really abusers. Really hard to tell in this case yeah. where the truth is. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Richard Hutchinson testified that Shane told him his father was friendly and outgoing to people, but a different person at home, moody and abusive. Shane told him that his father beat him up even when he was small. He said that he loved and felt sorry for his father, even though his father had hurt him. When the prosecutor approached Shane with a pitchfork, Shane broke down in tears. So he, he did have some very big signs of distress, yeah, at least. of trauma at a um, Shane stayed mostly composed through the questioning of the, com- of the prosecution. And, but when the prosecutor stated that Shane had dumped his father, he responded in anger. He didn't dump the body. He slid him out of the truck bed. It wasn't violent or anything like that. So that's so kind that's of caring. Kinda, yeah. 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 Um, Dr. Hutchinson began to suspect Shane had been sexually abused after psychological tested, testing indicated he was highly depressed. Shane told him that his father had forced him to share a bed until the 7th or 8th grade. His father would masturbate in front of him. And I should have done a trigger warning. Sorry. Oh, apologies. Trigger warning. Um, <sighs> His father forced him to allow his father to rub powder on him. And even after he had his own bedroom, Shane would sleep on the couch with the lights on because he would sometimes wake to find his father standing in his room watching him. Yeah, that sounds horrible. But this explains why his brother said there were two bedrooms with two different beds. Right. That piece of the testimony. Because I was wondering where... Even though I've read all this, it's like my brain had kind of forgotten how that tied in. Yeah, and I mean, and even if Shane had had his own bedroom as a smaller child, his father still could have forced him to oh, share yeah. the bed. You know, I mean, there's nothing that says not... the actual appearance of two beds means those two beds are being used individually. Right. Um, so Dr. Hutchinson diagnosed Shane with PTSD. Um, Shane did testify in his own defense. Or else he wouldn't have been right. crossed by the prosecution. He stated that when... Yeah, sorry. Stuff yeah. got a little out of order. <laughs> That's all right. There's a lot of stuff there. But, no, I get it. I'm um, just giving, making sure we... Yeah. Yeah. He stated that when questioned by police, no one would listen to him. He repeatedly was told he was lying. Uh, no one checked him for a head injury. His family physician testified that she examined him three days after the initial questioning, and she saw a thickened area on his scalp, which could indicate an injury. Shane said that his father forced him to share his bed until about 13. Okay, so um, the seventh-ish grade. Yeah. yeah. 
The thirty thirty rifle used to kill Lonnie was a Christmas present from him to Shane. It's a little... Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm making a face. <laughs> She's making a face. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. You gave it to me. Here you go. Uh, I'm going to give it to you. Well, I mean. Yeah. Shane told police his father was a mean, mean man. Dr. John Smith, a nationally recognized expert on abused children, testified that he believes Shane was suffering from abused child syndrome and PTSD at the same time of the murder. An actual doctor named John Smith. Yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That cracked me up. He was definitely, I mean, I I was reading and I didn't put any of that in here, but he was nationally recognized. He was nationally like brought in specifically for cases like this. He is the expert. Yeah. And this is where it's like you've got the two sides. Right. Where his um, girlfriend was all like, he never told me he was abused. Right. Yet you see a number of experts saying he he most definitely was. Um. Shane had confided years of physical and sexual abuse. Shane had been left with a mixture of feelings, including rage, embarrassment, humiliation, and anxiety. And you can see how a teenage, young teenage man would tell his friends that he beat up his dad instead of saying that you know that he was being beat up yeah beating him up oh i've got a little bruise because yeah you know i mean that that actually kind of makes sense and Um, you can imagine that like his dad with that whole instance of the dog being kicked or whatever in the house mm -hmm. um a scuffle could lead to the abuser being the one who gets an injury right yes exactly and maybe he tripped him fell on his face right So Shane's half-sister, Heidi Torrance, said that their father never abused either of them. She said their father had been concerned about Shane, that Shane's academic record was suffering, and his relationship with young women was not good. Uh, He was too young, immature to be having sex, which, again, shows that his father did not approve of his girlfriend and their relationship. And if he abused only boys, then his daughter might not know about it. Exactly. Or she doesn't want to know. And I don't think she lived with them. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like she did. She probably stayed with them. Her mom. You know, I mean, she probably visited and was there on weekends and stuff. But how do you know what's going on the whole time? Right. Um. Shane had also been unreliable on the farm. Well, well he's a teenager. teenage boy. <laughs> she stated she would have no more contact with Shane. Okay. Um, Delma Hendricks was the last witness. She had babysat for both Shane and Heidi as children. She saw bruises on Shane frequently. Uh, she also noticed Shane go stiff whenever his father approached him. Uh, and then the outcome was that Shane was acquitted of murder on May 20th, 1994. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds like pretty damning evidence. A person yeah. who doesn't really have a reason to lie. Right. Um, who knew the, the children at the ages when he was being abused mm-hmm. or sup- when he says he was being abused. I mean, it, I can't even imagine being on this jury. Because oh, gosh. How do you, how do you, I mean, nobody... Nobody's ever going to know the truth of what really happened. But, you know, hearing some of the abuse that Shane supposedly went through, I mean, if he did go through it, that's... That's some serious abuse. Yeah. 
Um, so June 15th, he was given the maximum sentence for concealment. Understandable. Uh, the judge believed that Shane's disrespect for authority and need for psychological treatment, placing him on probation or in a juvenile home, would not benefit him. Family claimed Shane was associated with a gang, that it was, I guess the defense had it barred. Sheriff Glancy stated they found gang-related material in Shane's bedroom. I kind of wonder about that whole I thing. I really want to know what it was. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing her thinking farmer and a gang. Yeah, that just doesn't... It doesn't sit right in my head, but then I really couldn't see it in Kiwani when we were growing up. And that's the thing. It's like knowing that that area, knowing the time, when would he even be able to meet a gang? access. Yeah. Yeah. Just doesn't make a lot of sense. But... Hey, what do I know? I I mean, you never know. Um, After the trial... Judge Conway said he regretted agreeing to the plea deal for Ms. Montroy. I'm sure after she was lying all over the place mm-hmm. on the stand, he's like, well, she said she lied to police, prosecutors, and the grand jury. The judge said if he had been aware of this, there's no way on God's green earth he would have agreed to probation. <laughs> no way on God's green earth. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. He, he definitely was like. I should not have agreed to this. Um, but and something that we both found interesting, we were talking about at this time, this is about the same time the whole OJ thing was yes. happening. And this actually morphed from being the criminal case to the civil case. Yes. In 1998, there was a trial for his father's estate yes. in probate court. So five years after Mr. Hilliard's death, Chief Circuit... Uh, Judge Jeffrey O'Connor and um, I think a guy I went to high school with I think this was his dad but I could be wrong Um, he moved to block Mr. Hilliard's son Shane from inheriting the estimated $450,000 estate Judge O'Connor ended that quest by ruling the July 1993 fatal shooting was intentional and unjustifiable despite Shane's self-defense claims, and in 1994, acquittal of murder. Bullet tracing in those areas proves that the shooting pattern Shane describes, including one shot in the shoulder while his father's arms were raised, could not have happened. Lonnie Hilliard's right humerus bone was destroyed by one shot, making it physically impossible for him to hold a pitchfork in a stabbing position at ear or shoulder level. Kelly testified against Shane again for this trial. Shocker. Sorry. (laughs) Um, So, again, she had pled guilty in 1994 um, for helping to hide the body. So... Yeah. So this whole civil cases and following criminal criminal cases, I just did a little searching, obviously thinking of OJ and all the other fun stuff. So a key difference between civil and criminal law comes in the courts themselves, as criminal courts are typically prosecuted by state officials, whereas civil cases take place between plaintiffs or private individuals and organizations. So is a criminal conviction necessary? Obviously, I think we already know the answer to that one. Nope. 
even if a criminal case ends in acquittal or dismissal, this doesn't mean that a civil case can't proceed. In criminal cases, the state must prove the allegations beyond a reasonable doubt, as I'm sure all of you have heard a few times. Meanwhile, in civil matters, the plaintiff needs only prove the necessary elements through the preponderance of the evidence. So it's a different level of requirement where it's like you need to be you need to get the all the jurors to agree versus 50% plus mm-hmm. um, if there's a jury. This means that some evidence that may not have been admissible in the criminal trial or if admissible wasn't enough to sway the members of a jury can be used to prove the plaintiff's case in civil court. Furthermore, because a criminal conviction generally requires the intent to cause harm while civil liability does not, a criminal acquittal due to the defendant's lack of intent won't provide a uh, prevent a civil victory so there's that difference of intent and uh no intent Mm -hmm. so a civil plaintiff can use the findings that were made in the criminal case as evidence without needing to reprove the allegations this can make the civil case far less expensive to prosecute than it would have been had there been no criminal case in the first place so since there was a case there was plenty of evidentiary um facts that were already entered into the court and didn't have to be re-examined so can a case be both criminal and civil why yes it can (laughs) the two proceedings can apply different standards to resolve the various wrongs Um, a lot of times if uh, there's actually times that somebody will have a uh, a civil case going forward and then criminal intent is found and they'll pause, go into the criminal case and then come back to the civil. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, like I said, you can break both criminal law and commit a legal wrong against a private individual for the same conduct. So the criminal lawsuit, that higher standard, um, decides whether or not the criminal, the person has broken a criminal rule. Law. 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 Words are nice. <laughs> the lawsuit may deal with cases involving murder, burglary, theft, assault, money laundering, drug dealing, arson, fraud, nursing home abuse, uh, and so on. Civil suits apply a lower standard of proof, decides whether a person violated a civil law. Civil lawsuit may deal with, as I said a minute ago, wrongful death. Um, Let's see. uh, And that's where a person's death is caused by the negligence of another person or entity. The surviving family members usually have the right to bring a civil lawsuit seeking damages from the responsible person. This type of lawsuit is called wrongful death. Each state has very specific rules governing them. And that's where I'm like, think about OJ. Mm -hmm. He was found criminally or civilly uh, I can do words. I really can. Responsible for uh, Nicole's death. Mm -hmm. Um, Other civil uh, liabilities are personal injury claims, such as car accidents, uh, truck accidents, and auto accident injuries, um, medical malpractice, divorce, child custody, employee discrimination, landlord-tenant issues, and contract disputes. In some instances, a case can be both criminal and civil, like I said before. So, um, yeah, it's a victim can pursue damages from the defendant from a criminal case that's been dismissed because that wrong can be found through tort law, what have you. So one thing I did forget to put in here, but I remember reading about was that after the civil case, um, Shane did come out and say that he 
would not have if he had won he would not have kept the money he would have given it back to the rest of the family um who knows if that's true True, i mean you say something in the moment um and but he his wife also confirmed this saying that they had discussed it it was something where i think i think he did feel guilty about the whole thing with his father it really um and i'm presuming the vast majority of his estate was the actual land and i would presume he would want nothing to do with farming it right yeah um so in 2011 shane suffered a stroke that left him mostly disabled uh he's in a wheelchair and has issues with his speech he's not able to work a normal job um he spoke out for the first time about what happened and the article was you know it didn't really bring anything new New, to what we've already discussed but i will say his parting comment which is fear silences people who have been abused silence keeps keeps them from moving beyond their trauma if you've been abused you can't keep it bottled up inside you've got to let it out and, and that's that's very, very true yeah yeah trauma um, it, and it also comes out in different ways in different people mm-hmm. and this is i know that um one of the things that i researched and decided not to pull in here mm-hmm. was the whole discussion about um when it's truly self-defense and not because there used to be a much stronger requirement for like you had to think you're you were about to die and you remember mm-hmm. like the burning bed um, the wife who killed her husband. Yes. That was like one of the first times that kind of shifted from, right. well, he wasn't going to kill you right then and there, but she had such ominous, eminent feelings of he's going to die if I don't do this right now. Right. Um, she thought for sure she was going to die eminently in her children and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those. We can't say for sure that he didn't... Um, that he did indeed get abused, but it definitely sounds, I mean, we've got experts that say he was. Right. And even if you were abused, is that necessarily the rationale behind, is that truly self-defense if they'd stopped abusing you? Right. So we don't know when, apparently, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse was when he was much younger. Mm-hmm. What was the level of physical abuse now? Had he be- gone from being the abused to the abuser? Mm-hmm. That's another piece that, like that part where I said about six percent, yeah. and you know, you you watch enough uh, murder mystery and other cop shows and stuff like that. Patterns of abuse, like mm-hmm. we talked about a little bit earlier, they tend to continue until somebody stops it. Right. And perhaps he had gone from being the abused, and now he was the abuser, and he was at fault the whole time. It's it's, it's hard, hard to, say. to say, and, and yeah, yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, it's hard because there was a lot of both sides. Yes. You know, and this is pro. And again, I would not want to be on that jury. Oh no way! That was. I mean, how do you make that decision with? No, that's a well, lot. Yeah, that's a lot. And I would, I, I definitely would at this point in time completely err to the fact that he was definitely abused at one mm-hmm. point in time. The the, right. You know, we've got plenty of people who have expertise exactly i'll listen to the subject matter expert on that one right now whether that was enough to claim self-defense right. sorry am i that's okay you're playing footsie with me <laughs> no big deal <laughs> i was just playing around I'm like wait that's warm that's not the floor 
Oh yes. What can I say? We're playing footsie over here. But yeah, it's um and I'm it's very sad when somebody loses a lot of their ability through a stroke. Yeah. Um so I'm glad he's got his wife who is so supportive of him. Yeah. And um since you always talk about the victim in true fashion, it, you know, whether or not Lonnie was a good guy doesn't really matter. He did you know, lose his life. He lost his life and um so he graduated from Western Illinois University with a degree in agriculture. Mm-hmm. He was former vice president of Galesburg Production Credit Association. I have never heard of that. but Me neither. But then um, I didn't go banking in Galesburg either. either. So. <laughs> um, he was elder at the church. He was a Lions Club member. He was a former volunteer firefighter. He was very active in the Alexis community. He married Candace in 1973. I'm not sure when they divorced. Yeah. But, um, and then he, of course, had his son. And then he also had the daughter, Heidi Torrance. Um, um, and I just was going to add, because it's like, I, I don't know how many people recognize that farmers get degrees. Some people might be surprised by that. Some examples of degrees that farmers get. Farm management, agriculture, agronomy, animal science, aquaculture, fisheries, biology, and hydrology. I happen to remember the turkeys. Andy had gotten a animal husbandry. Uh, it was just a, a no, not a bachelor's, but an associate's degree. Because mm-hmm. again, um, there's a lot of reasons why you would get these. How you want to manage your um, your land... Right. what you're growing, it can change. There's a lot of um, science behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, according to a 2011 USDA report, roughly a quarter of farmers earn college degrees, only slightly lower than the 30% average in U.S. households. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually may be surprised the following colleges have farming degrees. Clemson, University of Florida at Gainesville, um, Oregon State University. So this is all, um, it's actually pretty, I, I don't think it's surprising, but then I, you know, lived with farmers. Yeah. Um, and you can say, hey, aren't most family farmers born into farming families? Yes. yes. But those who do get degrees recognize there's a lot to learn. And even those who don't will look to get cert- certifications for equipment perhaps um to upgrade their current family farm like i said andy got an animal husbandry one because they had a milking operation yeah ways to make sure that you're keeping your uh cows um safe and and getting the best out of them what have you um primarily farmers are trained through hands-on experience and are not required to have a college degree Aspiring farmers can learn through apprenticeships or being supervised and trained by experienced farmers. Uh, A skilled farmer does need uh, to include being able to effectively communicate with workers, analyze livestock, land quality, make hard decisions. A farmer must have experience operating and maintaining complex cultural machines have you been in a combine in the last 20 years you know they've changed so significantly farming is not an easy oh no it is not easy work and i mean you're farmers are are sun up to sundown workers even today you know and i mean granted there are down times but even in your down times that's when you're in your Morton shed working on your equipment. Mm-hmm. And most of them tend to, um, I've also known farmers to get um, 
experience and mechanical experience because what's expensive is bringing somebody out to work on that expensive equipment right um yeah uh, there are certifications as farm manager available through american society of farm managers and rural appraisers Mm -hmm. there's just um i know when i was the last time i was in kiwani and i was sitting on the front porch with uh the jerkies and they were talking about you know the difference in their combines and stuff now it's gps and you're in it to make sure that things don't go awry but really you're able to manipulate and use as much of your land as possible mm-hmm. where before it was you know you had to really know your land i mean not that you're not going to know your land now right but how much work goes into that it's yeah. a lot yeah and if once your stuff is is uh ready to be pulled from the ground you also have to watch the weather and sometimes you'll see mm-hmm. if you drive through the midwest or even if you're anywhere near agriculture that happens when you're talking crops, they'll be out there all flipping night to bring in that crop before weather right. destroys it. Yep. Because and... you can't drive a combine through mud. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. Yep. So that's yes. our story today. <laughs> Didn't know you were going to end up hearing about combines now, did you? <laughs> Not that I know a ton about them. I never drove one. No thanks. Leave that to the experts. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> it definitely um so as always thank you for listening to nothing Nothing happens happens in a small small town uh we are now actually on audible as well so if you're an audible listener and you prefer to listen to us there uh we just got added there um we're gonna have some hopefully some things brewing in the near future i've been looking into some things so Oh, and I forgot. I was going to mention that my Uncle Pete, congratulations on retiring. It is kind of bittersweet. I don't know if you all have heard of the spotted owl. It was endangered species for a while. Apparently, he was on CNN at least once and was pulled from his vacation to go testify in front of the endangered species uh, um, court for the spotted owl he tagged his last spotted owl just last week mm-hmm. and beaut- i just love those animals they're so yeah. pretty apparently the forestry service that had uh, commissioned the project to track them um it's uh done um. so that sounds like the right time for him to retire and apparently i mean they've got a huge amount of data about how the birds are in the wild and the numbers have increased um, so hopefully they continue to do so. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations, Pete. <laughs> yep. Hey, Pete. I think I actually met Pete one time when he was passing through. He had a dog, right? Yes, yes. Trey. Yes. Oh, that was a beautiful dog. He was such a good dog. Yeah. So I did meet Uncle Pete. Yep. Yeah. Yep. He used yeah. to, he would uh, go out in the field during the week mm-hmm. and come home on the weekends. So he literally would, you know, camp in between, you know, put out a... Uh, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Hammock in mm-hmm. between trees and cool. put a little extra like tarp over it so he would stay dry. Nice. And his dog packed in and packed out his own stuff too. <laughs> so cute. Aw. Trey was a beautiful dog. So, um, <laughs> here we go. Um, we do still have our Patreon page. Yes. That's www.patreon.com slash nothing, nothing happens, happens in a, a small, small town. town. Our Instagram username profile is nothing, nothing happens, happens in a small, small town. town. 
Our Twitter username profile is Nothing Nothing Happens Happens in a Small small Town, town N-H-I-A-S-T. Facebook page is Nothing Happens Happens in in a Small small Town, town at N-H-I-A-S-T 2021. And Gmail is Nothing Happens in a Small Town at gmail.com. You see a pattern here? I don't know. Something. Patterns? Patterns? What are those? (laughs) Anyhow, thank you all for listening and talk to you again soon. Bye.